This is a Rooster Teeth production. July 6, 2013. Asiana Airlines Flight 214, a Boeing 777 with 307 people on board, is about to touch down at San Francisco's International Airport after an overnight flight from Seoul, South Korea. As the plane is about to touch down on runway 28 left, the pilots realize they are too low. They attempt to increase thrust to go around, but it's too late. The tail of the plane strikes the end of the runway and detaches from the rest of the plane. The forward section of the plane pitches down into the ground 30 degrees as the entire plane pirouettes 330 degrees counterclockwise around its nose. Shockingly, only three people perish. What happened during a routine flight's final moments that caused it to end in tragedy? Find out on this episode of Black Box Down. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Black Box Down. It's Gus and Chris. We're back talking again. Hi, Chris. Hello. We are uh, here to talk about Asiana Airlines Flight 214, uh, a fairly recent one, a fairly recent yeah. incident as far as uh, episodes that we typically cover. Before we get into the meat, as always, I want to remind you, did, have you followed us on social media yet? Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, whatever you use, you can probably follow us there and see some pictures. There's actually video of this incident. You know, in some of the other incidents, I talk about how there's cameras everywhere nowadays. Well, this incident is caught on camera. It also helps that it was at an airport. Mm. So there's actual video footage of uh, of this incident occurring. So follow us on social media at Black Box Down Pod, and um, I'm sure you'll enjoy it. Also, while you're at it, why not tell a friend about this podcast? Do you know yeah. someone in San Francisco? Maybe they they remember <laughs> this incident. Because the best the best way to tell people about something is direct uh, social media and stuff, or in person. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't yeah, really exactly. matter. We just just share <laughs> share it. Just be like, hey, you like podcasts? I got a podcast for you. It's free. Make that post on your profile okay so like i said this is a fairly recent incident i remember when this happened we were chris you and i were at an event we were at rtx here in austin uh-huh when this happened i used to run that event and i remember uh, hearing about this like as it occurred but it was one of those things where like you know i'm super interested in, in, in aviation incidents i wanted to know what was going on but i was so focused on the event i couldn't like yeah. <laughs> keep up with what was uh being uh said about this incident at the time did you know anyone in the area that had, I mean... I know people in San Francisco. Um, I don't know anyone who was on this flight. You know, I didn't know anyone who was uh, flying back from South Korea at the time. But I knew people who, you know, I still, I guess I still know people who live up uh, in the Bay Area. Yeah. So, Asiana Airlines Flight 214, like I said, it was a passenger flight. It was coming from Incheon Airport in uh, Seoul, South Korea to San Francisco, California on July 6th, 2013. The crew consisted of... Captain Lee Jong-min, who was 49 years old, had 12,387 flight hours. He was in the right seat at the time. You know, normally you think of the first officer as being over in the right seat. But he was in the right seat at the time of the accident because he was acting as the check instructor captain and pilot in command. And this was actually his first flight as an instructor. He was in command, but the check instructor? Yeah, he was like, you know, we've talked about this before, like that Qantas flight with the A380 where the engine blew up. Mm -hmm. He was the instructor for the person who was flying the plane. Like teaching him? Exactly. The person who was actually flying the plane uh, normally flew Airbus A320s, and he was trying to learn how to fly the Boeing 777. He was making oh. the transition to a new plane. He was also a captain. He was Captain Lee Kang-kuk, who was 45 years old and had 9,793 flight hours, most of them on the A320, and he was transitioning over to the 777. So he also had tons of time flying, uh, just a new plane for him. Uh, he was in the left seat, and he was receiving his initial operating experience training for Asiana and was operating, you know, the controls under the supervision of the instructor. Hmm. As well, you know, this was a long 
Trans-Pacific flight. So there were other crew as well. You know, there was the relief first officer who was Bong Dong Wan, who was 40 years old. He was sitting in the cockpit jump seat. And there was a relief captain who was Lee Jong-ju, who was 52 years old. And he was sitting back in a business class seat. So there were a lot of captains. Right. You know, but that's, that's typical. You have your relief crew for a long flight like this. Yeah. This airplane in particular was a seven-year-old Boeing 777. It had 37,120 hours and 5,388 cycles. And a cycle, of course, is when the plane pressurizes at altitude and then comes back down and depressurizes. There were 12 flight attendants and 291 passengers on board. So 307 people on total. I'm going to go on a little tangent here. If you remember, we did an episode recently about the Airbus A340. Uh, it's that four-engine plane that mm-hmm. typically doesn't get flown in the United States. And we, we specifically did an episode about that plane because there had been so few incidents yeah. involving that plane. That's the chonker that is surprisingly slim. Yes, it's a very long, <laughs> slim plane. That's kind of like me. <laughs> well, the Boeing 777 also has an excellent safety record. Mm-hmm. I believe as of the this time, as of July 6, 2013, there had been only two other hull losses of a Boeing 777, one of which I believe it wasn't even flying at the time. The other incident that involved a 777 was that British Airways flight we talked about where they had ice crystals in the fuel. Oh. And uh, they crashed yeah. also on landing at London Heathrow. No one died in that incident. So three people died in uh, this incident we're talking about today. So these were the first fatalities actually on a Boeing 777. So it's had a very long career, very safe airplane, great safety record. So I just want to throw that out there before uh, we dive any further into the episode. Just a little bit of trivia for you. Just so you know, it's a good plane. Yeah, good plane. So the estimated flight time from Seoul to San Francisco is about 10 hours and 24 minutes. I've actually flown this route. It's a, it's a, it's a, it can be a long flight. At about 9.28 a.m. San Francisco time, the captain who, like I said, he was doing his training, he re-entered the cockpit from his break and he was the pilot flying. The relief captain told him that he had programmed the flight management computer with the ILS approach for 2.8 left and advised him of the likelihood that the flight would be held at a high altitude and or high speed by air traffic control for longer than normal during the approach to San Francisco. About 10 minutes later, the Czech captain, the instructor, uh-huh. entered the cockpit as well. At about 10.42 a.m., the two pilots began their approach briefing and picked up the current airport information. Part of this information included that visual approaches to runways 28 left and 28 right were in progress, and that the ILS glide slope for these runways was out of service. Basically, that means that some of the automation that helps them land the plane was offline. So they were going to have to do visual on this landing. What time is it right now? At this point, it's about 10.42 in the morning. Okay, so daylight. Daylight, mm -hmm, early morning. The weather conditions were actually really nice coming into San Francisco this day. You you know, Bay Area can be really beautiful. Mm -hmm. There was great visibility, very little clouds. So really, this was a beautiful day. And I believe that the, um, the pilot flying, you know, the one who was learning how to fly in the 777, this was one of his first times coming into San Francisco, you know, and it's a beautiful approach. You see like the, uh, the bridges uh, coming in and everything. So, I mean, that just to put you in the headspace where he was, you know, he was looking at a lot of this stuff. Hopefully he wasn't looking too much. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully not. So the pilot flying stated he expected vectors for a visual approach to runway 28 left and would use the localizer to maintain a lateral path. So... The localizer was still working, so it, it would help him line up, but the ILS glide slope, which like helps them figure out their vertical path coming down, uh, was the one that was not operational. He was going to have to eyeball that one. Mm-hmm. After capturing the localizer, he would use the automated flight control system to manage the vertical profile. He stated that the minimum descent altitude for the localizer approach would be 460 feet, and he would set a go-around altitude of 3,000 feet in case of a missed approach. And this is all standard. As they're coming into land, 
they go over like, in case we can't land, in case there's something goes wrong, we have to have a go around altitude that we're going to hit immediately after uh, passing the runway. Yeah, we've talked about that. Yeah, we've talked about this. And I've mentioned, I've been on planes where this happens, where I've, I've actually been on a plane that touches down on the runway and then the engines <laughs> come back on full throttle and then you go back up again. I think I have too. It's very confusing. You're like, what? wait, what? 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 Where are we going? <laughs> Personally, I hate it because it's like, oh, crap. That's another 15, 30 minutes that we're going to be in the air now. You know, you're going to have to go back up, go all the way back around, line up and come back down. Not very rare, but not very common. Like, it's not, it's nothing to worry about if this happens to you. It happens fairly regularly. At about 10.47 a.m., they went through the descent checklist, which included the certification that the landing speed would be 132 knots, which is 152 miles per hour or 244 kilometers an hour. I, you know, I really need to figure out how to do that conversion in my head. Anytime we're, we're <laughs> writing these down, I always have to use a, uh, like a, an online calculator to convert between knots and miles an hour. So... At 11.21 a.m., air traffic control asked the flight crew if they had the airport in sight. They said they did, and the controller cleared them for a visual approach for runway 28 left. Uh, according to the flight data recorder, when they were given the clearance, the airplane was descending through 6,300 feet at a speed of 211 knots with its flaps and gears up, which is 243 miles an hour or 391 kilometers an hour. So fast. Mm -hmm. The auto throttle was in hold mode and the autopilot was in flight level change speed pitch mode. So I I'm going to apologize right now. We're about to talk a lot about autopilot modes. Okay. Yeah, we're not going to get into all of the nitty gritty, all of the details. I mean, like I've said before, I'm not a pilot. I couldn't explain to you the, the, all the intricate details of each and the differences between them. But we're going to go over the relevant information uh, where it's necessary. A minute later, the pilot flying said that he was intercepting the localizer and that the localizer mode was armed. Just before 11.53, the localizer was captured and the autopilot switched from heading selector mode to localizer mode where it remained for the rest of the flight. Okay. At this time, the airplane was about 15 miles from the runway threshold. It was descending through 5,300 feet and had an airspeed of about 210 knots. Okay. The pilot monitoring, who was the instructor, suggested to descend slowly to 1,800 feet and they set the flaps to the first position. The pilot flying then set the control panel to a selected airspeed of 192 knots, which is 221 miles an hour. At 11.23, the airplane was about 14 miles out from the airport uh, at an altitude of 4,800 feet and an airspeed of 215 knots, which is 247 miles an hour, and a descent rate of about 900 feet per minute. The controller instructed the plane to reduce to 180 knots, 207 miles an hour, and to maintain that speed until they were five miles out. So tell them, slow down a little bit until you're five miles from the airport. Okay. The pilot flying acknowledged this and asked for the flaps to be extended to the next position. The pilot monitoring made an unintelligible comment as the selected airspeed changed to 180 knots. So they're going through the process, extending the flaps, lowering their speed like they were asked mm -hmm. to. The pilot flying stated, flaps five, sir. And then the pilot monitoring extended the flaps. The autopilot was then changed to vertical speed mode, which keeps their descent rate the same until hitting that altitude of 1,800 feet. So it's just like, maintain that mm. i think they were going to put i say about 900 feet a minute maintain that until they hit 1800 feet and then their auto throttle was switched to speed mode which maintains their selected airspeed and the auto throttles just like a fancy cruise control it, uh, it takes care okay. of throttling the engines for them so basically they the autopilot of the plane is told maintain this descent speed until 1800 feet and maintain the airspeed at the same speed uh as well and then at 1800 feet it stops Maintaining? It would maintain at 1,800 feet. At that point, then, theoretically, the pilot should then take over or give new instructions to the system. Okay. At 11.24, the plane was about nine and a half miles out and a speed of 185 knots. 
the first officer, you remember, who was sitting back in the jump seat, mm-hmm. commented they were supposed to be at 180 knots. Remember, they're a little fast now. And the mm-hmm. pilot flying said, okay, 185 miles. A few seconds later, they were at a speed of 188 knots and 3,500 mm-hmm. feet. So they start going a little faster. And the pilot flying called for the landing gear to be extended. The gear handle was moved to the down position and the pilot monitoring stated, this seems a little high. The pilot flying said, yeah. The pilot monitoring repeated, this should be a bit high. The pilot flying asked, do you mean it's too high? I will descend more. And the selected vertical speed was changed to 1,500 feet a minute. Remember, they were descending at 900 feet a minute. So now they increase it to descend at 1,500 feet a minute. Descend faster because they're too high up for the runway? Right. Higher than what they should be. And rough, like off the top of my head, math, a descent rate of 1,500 feet a minute is probably between 15 and 20 miles an hour vertical down. A few moments later, they changed the selected vertical speed to descend 1,000 feet. They were about 6.3 miles out and a speed of 178 knots. So their speed's getting better, mm-hmm. and they're they're just fiddling with their descent rate. And everything's mostly normal at this point. Mostly. I mean, things are a little out of whack. Their speed's not quite right, and the instructor's saying they seem like a little high, and you know, they're trying to figure out whether or not mm-hmm. they should be this high or not. I, I've seen interviews with airline pilots who talk about landing at San Francisco, and they have a term for it. They call it slam dunk landings. Oh. Because they say that they're often instructed to stay high and then descend very quickly at the last second oh. to come into the airport. And they say that because they have to leave lower altitudes open for planes that are taking off that might be needing to turn. And it's just because it's a busy airport? Exactly. Slam dunk landings. Wow, that is not a <laughs> comforting term. It doesn't sound good. <laughs> but that could be at this point why they're talking about like, oh, we're a little high. You know, is this right? You know, because they, they, I'm sure the, the instructor mm-hmm. knows like when you come into San Francisco, you got to do these slam dunk landings. So maybe they're a little worried about it. They're, they're thinking about that procedure. Yeah. So when they reached the five mile mark, they were about 400 feet above the desired glide path altitude. So they're, they're high. When you said they're 400 high, high from what they were told by the airport or from the instructor? From where they should be, from the glide path for their land. Okay. So they're, they're definitely too high. They selected the airspeed of 152 knots, which is 175 miles an hour or 282 kilometers an hour. The pilot flying then called for flaps 30 and the pilot monitoring replied with speed check flaps 30, sir. And the reason he said that is they were actually at 174 knots and the speed limit for flaps 30 is 170 knots. So they were a little faster than they should have been for Mm -hmm. the flaps to be extended to that position. I didn't know there was a limit on flaps, but I guess it makes sense because the flaps can kind of slow you down and raise you up, right? Right. And also like they might be damaged if the speed is too high. Because remember, if like if, if flaps hit 30, that means they're at a 30 degree angle coming off the plane. So they're really like catching a lot more yeah. air, you know, they're into that um, airstream. The autopilot was switched back to flight level change speed mode and the autothrottle was set to thrust mode and the airplane began to slow down. The pilot monitoring then selected flaps 30 and the autopilot was disconnected. About three miles out, the target speed was set to 137 knots, which is 158 miles an hour, 254 kilometers an hour at an altitude of 1300 feet. At 11.26 and 44 seconds, the pilot monitoring stated, it's high, and over the next eight seconds, the airplane descent rate increased from 1,000 to 1,500 feet per minute. When the airplane descended through 1,000 feet, it was about 243 feet above the desired glide path. So they're still high. You know, they're they're at 1,000 feet altitude, but they're still 243 feet higher than they should be. Yeah. Should they not have at this point... Say, so let's recircle around? Like, at what well, point? They're still trying to adjust for it. Okay. It's debatable, right? I mean, at some yeah. point, 
in this process where they're coming in for this landing, yes, they should have made that call. I can't tell you exactly when it is or where it is, but it should have happened at some point. Okay. They probably still could have salvaged it at this point, but they're getting very close to the point where they need to figure that out. So when I mentioned a second ago that the autopilot was switched back to flight level change speed pitch mode, uh-huh. essentially what's happening here is at this point, now that autopilot, when it enters that mode, it's going to try to hit their go-around altitude. So when they enter that mode, it thinks it needs to climb back up to 3,000 feet. To try to do that, the plane increases throttle, but then the pilots pull the throttle back because you know their speed is too high and their, their, their altitude is too high. So they pull the throttles back to try to compensate for that, which is what starts to cause all of these problems. Because the autopilot still wants to try to get to 3,000 feet, so it starts pitching the nose up. So they, they had the wrong autopilot or was it the wrong type of autopilot or the autopilot set for too high? They were in the wrong mode. Okay. They should not have switched back to that mode. So the plane's trying to pitch up to get to 3,000 feet. It's trying to increase throttle, but then they also set the throttle back down, essentially to idle. Mm-hmm. The engines are at idle. The nose is pitching up, and they're still a couple miles from the airport. Oh. At this point, they're too high. So yeah. <laughs> essentially, you can see why the tail hit first. Like yeah. the plane's starting to pitch up. And that's what's going to cause the tail to strike. But that's going to happen in a couple of minutes. We're still, we'll get there. Okay. So like we mentioned, the um, ILS was offline. But that's not the only system available to help pilots land. There's another system that pilots can use. It's called uh, a POPI, P-A-P-I. It's the Precision Approach Path Indicator Lights. It's essentially, mm-hmm. there's four lights next to the runway. And they're side by side. And they mm-hmm. either show red or white. If you're too high above the glide path, they show as white. If you're too low below the glide path, they all show as red. If you're perfectly on the glide path the way you should be, it's too white and too red. Oh, okay. And this is known? It's a standard. Okay, so it's a standard across all planes? Most airports. Almost any airport should have these lights. Okay, and they aren't tailored to individual planes. Like, what do you mean? I guess maybe I don't understand your question. When you say the glide path, like if it... Some planes, I would imagine, might have a different glide path in. They all essentially are going to follow the same path. Okay. And it's live communicating between the lights, the transmit, like the plane is communicating between the two, I guess, right? So yeah, this this is not a computer system or anything. It's like four physical lights with light bulbs next to the runway. It, you know, it, it's not anything in the cockpit. If you're coming into land uh, to the left of the runway, there's four lights uh, uh-huh. and you can look at them from the cockpit and you see, you know, if they're red or if they're white. Well, how does it, how do they know to change colors? I'm going to read to you the technical explanation of how it works, okay. <laughs> Chris. And then we, we can talk about it. We'll see. We'll figure it out together, okay? Each light unit consists of one or more light sources, red filters and lenses. Mm. Each light unit emits a high-intensity beam. The lower segment of the beam is red and the upper part is white. The transition between the two colors must take place over an angle not greater than three minutes of arc. This characteristic makes the color change very conspicuous, a key feature of the PAPI signals. So basically, it looks like it's just putting out both colors, and then as your altitude moves up or down, you see the color change from red to white. That's pretty cool. It's like not even computerized. It's just... Yeah, it's just it just works. It's just, yeah. it's just light. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you don't have to worry about a computer failing or a motor failing or anything. It's just putting out those lights. That's super cool. You're supposed to see two red, two white. If you see four white, you're too high. If you see four red, you're too low. Just a quick summary <laughs> Of, uh, of what they're seeing. You know what? I, I kind of feel like how this is not the same, but a lot of traffic lights aren't as visible from like certain angles, I think. And mm. I think purposely so, so that people aren't don't see them when they're not supposed to be seeing them. Like, yeah. 
that's a good analogy. I think like if instead of blocking your view, you saw red, it might be mm-hmm. more like this. Yeah. But yeah, similar thing where it's like this, you know, it's just, if the light's just working and then when you look at it from a different angle, it looks different. Yeah. So in this particular instance, all the lights were white at 1127. So they're too high. Yeah. And the first officer says, sync rate, sir. The pilot flying says, yes, sir. And a few seconds later, the first officer again said, sync rate, sir. Uh-huh. <laughs> the descent rate was almost 1800 feet per minute at this time. That's a lot. Is that a lot? <laughs> That's too much. <laughs> so uh-huh. their their sync rate's a little a little high. The descent rate began to decrease. You know, they're they're making it not quite as bad. And the controller cleared the plane to land. They acknowledge this, and the Pappy lights at this point are three white and one red. So a little high. Mm-hmm. The airspeed then dropped below 137 knots, and they began their landing checklist. When that was done, the pilot monitoring said, "On glide path, sir." And the Pappy actually showed two white, two red. So oh. they did it. At that moment, the airplane was descending through 400 feet at 134 knots. The airspeed then descended below 132 knots, which was their landing speed, but they were one mile away from the runway. The sink rate was at 1,000 feet, and the Pappy changed from one white to three red. So now, too low. The airplane's pitch increased from 2 degrees to 4 degrees, and the plane slowed to about 122 knots, which is 140 miles an hour. You say they pitched, so they went like kind of nose up again. Yeah, the nose is going up. Remember like I mentioned earlier? Yeah. The plane is still in the wrong autopilot mode, so it's mm-hmm. trying to pitch up. The Pappy then indicated four red lights, Ooh. and the plane is now pitching up 7 degrees. Ooh. The pilot monitoring said, it's low, and the pilot flying replied, yeah. The master caution alert, which is like the big alarm, uh, or the... Like the general alarm, I guess, uh-huh. sounded less than half a mile out from the airport at an airspeed of 114 knots, which is 131 miles an hour, and an altitude of 124 feet. So they're a half a mile out or less than half a mile out, 124 feet in altitude and 131 miles an hour. So they're really close, but they're really low and they're uh, really slow. When you say the alarm sounded, is that inside the plane? Yes. There's like a master caution. Yeah. Whenever you see like movies about plane crashes or like any dramatizations Uh of planes they always show like the master caution alarm so that's a real thing yeah yeah it's a real thing it's It's not just dramatized for movie no no yeah it it, it happens i think like from like a a dramatization perspective it looks cool you know like master caution or master warn uh, and it like it lights up right yeah it starts making noise (laughs) okay so they reached 100 feet altitude and the pilot monitoring advanced the thrust levers the stick shakers activated, and the lowest airspeed was 103 knots, which is 119 miles an hour. So they know that they're slow, right? So the pilot mm-hmm. monitoring tries to increase thrust. The stick shakers activate. You remember the stick shakers typically warn you're about to stall. And the airspeed began to increase, and the nose pitched to 12 degrees up. Whoa, that's a lot. At this point, there's a reason they don't pull back up and circle around. It's because they're going too slow. At this point, they're essentially trying to go around. Oh. That's why, you know, the that's why he's monitoring, pulling up. That's why, yeah, he increased the throttle and he's starting to pull up a bit. Because they're, they're at this point now, they've decided to go around. Okay. The pilot monitoring at this point actually calls for a go around, but it's too late. Like we said earlier, oh. there was a point in this where they should have decided to go around. Mm-hmm. I can't tell you what point it was exactly, but they, when, by the time they decided, it was too late. When this happens, you know, he calls for the go around. The tail of the airplane actually hits the runway threshold. Have you ever flown into San Francisco? You've flown into San Francisco, right? No, I've actually never been to San Francisco. You've never been to San Francisco? Well, when you come in to land uh, in this direction in San Francisco, you're over the bay. And before you get to land, there's this long pier that runs out into the water. Mm -hmm. And then the runway like starts. You know, it's like there's a shore and the runway. The tail of the plane hits like basically where the land starts (laughs) at the the threshold of the... uh, runway it's not hitting just like the runway it's hitting like there's a seawall there yes 
Wow. The tail hits that seawall. I was wondering how it snapped the plane in half. Because mm-hmm. it's like, I, I was thinking initially it would just like hit the ground and kind of like bounce, you know, but if it hits a wall. And the seawall, you know, is just to like prevent erosion and keep the land and yeah. stop the water from eroding the, the land around the runway away. So yeah, it's, it's actually the seawall that the tail hits. So you know, the tail hit that seawall at 1127, uh, 50 seconds in the morning at a speed of 106 knots. The tail of the plane separated and the plane <gasps> slid along the runway the fuselage lifted up and tilted the airplane to 30 degrees nose down. And the airplane actually spins 330 degrees counterclockwise. So basically, the nose is pointed down into the runway and the entire plane spins basically an entire circle oh. pivoting around the nose uh, on the runway. It impacts a second time and comes to rest to the left side of the runway, about 2,400 feet from the impact point. Just percentage-wise, okay, if, if the tail is is 1 and the and the nose is 10, where was this, the break? It was pretty far back. I would say if I had to guess two, maybe okay. three. Okay, so most everyone is in the front. Yeah. Are there people in the back still? Is it? How- it's it's really not a big section of the tail that is ripped off. Like I said, maybe fifteen percent of the plane. If I had to guess, if I had to guess on the top of my mm-hmm. head. But yes, there were people who were seated in that back section that got ripped off. You know, if people look on social media, we'll post uh, pictures of this. But there's also video footage of this. Like I said. You know, when the, the investigators are investigating this incident, you know, eyewitnesses are telling them the plane cartwheeled on the oh. runway and, you know, they can't believe it. And they see the footage. And like I, like I described to you, it looks like it cartwheels. The nose hits the ground and it just spins around almost oh. an entire circle. So, you know, as a result of all of this, two teenage girls were thrown out of the plane and were killed. Oh, no. It turns out neither of them were wearing their seatbelt. Oh, no. Which is why they were thrown out of the airplane. Yeah. There was a third teenage girl who passed away six days later at the hospital. She was hit by uh, a door inside the plane during the, the crash. In total, there were 49 serious injuries and 138 minor injuries. And the plane was totally destroyed by the impact and the fire. Were the passengers warned at all that there there might be a crash? Or was it just like... No, they had no idea. They just thought it was a normal landing. Right. Uh, I've seen interviews with uh, one person who survived this incident. You know, he was a business traveler, frequent flyer, mm-hmm. you know, flown in and out of San Francisco a bunch of times. And he said that, you know, when he was looking out the window when they were coming in to land, he thought, it seems like we're too low. <laughs> like, no. if I mentioned that pier yeah. you know, that comes out from the end of the runway. If you fly into San Francisco, you know, you, you've seen that pier. You know what I'm talking about. Like, when I look out, I see it all the time. Mm-hmm. I would think it was weird. You know, I'm sure I, I would probably have the same thought he did. Like, we shouldn't be this low, you know, when I'm seeing this pier right now. Yeah. They said that, in fact, that they were uh, so low that when uh, they increased the throttle to try to do their go-around, that the engine started sucking up water into them because they were, you know, so close to the ocean. Wow. These girls that were thrown out of the plane, there was actually controversy about these girls that, that passed away in this incident. Unfortunately, they were actually run over by rescue vehicles. Oh, no. And there was, they kept going back and forth. People, I mean, some people kept saying that they were killed by the impact. Other people said that they were alive on the runway and they got killed because they were run over by uh, these rescue vehicles. What? This was a huge deal. On top of this, like, they were Chinese citizens. They were, um, they were here for like a school. Oh, no. A school tour. I believe ultimately where they ended up was that one of the girls was alive on the runway and was run over by a rescue vehicle. And that's what killed her. Oh, how did they not? That's a good question. How did they not see them, right? When the fire trucks show up, they start spraying foam to put the fire out and there was foam on the ground and it, it was covering one of the girls. Oh. So oh they didn't know God. that she was out there on the ground. This was a 
huge deal to try to figure out. And like I said, it went back and forth. At first, they said it was the rescue vehicles. Then they said that she was already dead. Then they went back and said it was the rescue vehicles. This might still be ongoing, uh, honestly, at this point. But this was a crazy situation that they had to try to figure out. Yeah. It actually might be settled now. I believe what they found out was that the girl had foam. She had inhaled foam, oh. which means that she was alive. You know, she was still breathing uh, at that point. That's a whole other separate thing. I mean, that is, it's tragic. Uh, either way, regardless of what happened, mm-hmm. it's tragic. Okay. So the NTSB conducted the investigation and they saw problems began way out when uh, they be- the flight began its initial approach 14 miles away from the airport. After the flight crew accepted the 180 knot speed restriction, they made inputs to the autopilot that caused it to diverge from the desired glide path. The selection of 180 knots and flaps 5 was appropriate, but leaving the autopilot on flight level change speed pitch mode without using the speed brake was not effective because the autopilot was controlling airspeed with elevator inputs. So instead of using the speed brake to try to slow down, the auto throttle and the autopilot would pop the elevators up to try to slow down, but that also affects their altitude. And the reduction on the selected speed caused the airplane to pitch up and the descent rate decreased. So like I said, it uses the elevators to try to slow down, which is causing the airplane to begin pitching up. The elevators? Sorry, thank you for asking, Chris. (laughs) The (laughs) elevators are devices that on the tail of the plane, on the horizontal stabilizer that Mm -hmm. pop up or down to make the airplane go up or down. So if you ever look at the tail of a plane, it's the part that goes like up and down on the tail. And that's what controls the the pitch of the plane. Okay. Sorry, I know I say elevators. Some people might be thinking of, you know, <laughs> in your building elevators. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's different in this context. The flaps are on the wings. Yes. And then these are, this is on the tail. Correct. And this controls the pitch of like how, okay. And flaps are more for like speed and It, it generates more lift at lower speed. Yeah. Okay. There's also ailerons, which we covered in the past as well. Those are also on the wings, but we're not, that, that's not relevant to, to this discussion right now. And there's also flapperons, which we covered at one point. But okay, that's it. <laughs> now, now you're just showing off, Gus. <laughs> no, I just want to make sure you know that yeah, yeah, there yeah. are there are more parts. There are different. Parts. No, I know, I know. I, yeah, and I'll need to be reminded whenever we do talk about them. But go no, on. no, it's it's good. Long trip ahead of you, or do you need something new to listen to at the gym, or maybe you just wanted to live out the dream of being able to read with your eyes closed. Whatever you need, Audible's got it with a largest selection of audiobooks, thousands of binge-worthy podcasts, including Black Box Down, uh, guided wellness programs, theatrical performances, A-list comedy, and exclusive Audible originals all at your fingertips, all at one place. Right now, I'm listening to Leviathan Wakes. It's the book that The Expanse was based on. I love the TV show The Expanse so much. I was like, I gotta I gotta listen to the book. So I, I'm down, I downloaded Leviathan Wakes, and I'm listening to it right now. It's great sci-fi. If you love sci-fi, check it out. And the best way to check out Leviathan Wakes is to become an Audible member. With an Audible membership, you get credit every month towards any title in their entire selection, and it's yours to keep forever. You get full access to their Plus catalog, which is filled with thousands and thousands of audiobooks, podcasts, sleep tracks, guided fitness and meditations, all yours to download and stream all you want. And right now, you can go try Audible for 30 days free. Visit audible.com slash blackboxdown or text blackboxdown to 500-500. That's audible.com slash blackboxdown or text blackboxdown to 500-500 to try Audible for free for 30 days. It's 2021, which means there are so many new ways to diversify your portfolio. You got stocks, bonds, mutual funds, maybe some Dogecoin you bought as a joke. But what about private real estate? Studies have shown that portfolios that include private real estate generally deliver a better risk-adjusted return with more annual income and lower volatility. With Fundrise, now you can get into the private real estate because they provide access to all investors on an easy-to-use platform. Whether you're looking to add stable cash flow or long-term growth, Fundrise makes investing in private real estate as easy as investing in stocks, bonds, or mutual funds. 
Fundrise's team of real estate professionals carefully vet and actively manage their real estate projects. You can check your portfolio's performance and watch as properties across the country are required, improved, and operated via dynamic asset updates. See for yourself how 150,000 investors have built a better portfolio with private real estate. It takes just a few minutes to get started. Go to fundrise.com slash blackboxdown today. That's F-U-N-D-R-I-S-E dot com slash blackboxdown. All of the best moments in summer happen with your friends and family around a roaring fire. That is, until you go back inside and realize everyone reeks like smoke. Or even the one person who won't shut up about how they were in boy or girl scouts and can't even figure out how to light a fire. Uh, that might be me sometimes. I apologize. With Solo Stove, you get all of these story-worthy fireside moments without all of the smoke. Their stainless steel construction is designed to regulate airflow and burn more efficiently. There's so little smoke, you'll wonder how the heck there's so much fire. Plus, it's easy to light, keep lit, clean, take with you wherever your next adventure is. They're so confident you'll love it. They offer a lifetime warranty and a 30-day free return policy. I got one myself. I actually just set it up and tried it out last night. It's absolutely amazing. Uh, you really got to see this smokeless design. Uh, it's incredible. Actually, I'm really looking forward to sitting out <laughs> in my backyard uh, with this uh, solo stove. So check out the deep discounts available during their Memorial Day sale. Get a free stand with any fire pit so you can use your solo stove on any surface, including decks or outdoor rugs. Plus use promo code BLACKBOXDOWN at solostove.com for an extra $10 off. That's solostove.com, promo code BLACKBOXDOWN for $10 off on top of their incredible Memorial Day discounts. But hurry, Memorial Day sale ends May 31st. So as a result of all of this, the plane began to drift above the desired glide path, and this was not noticed by the pilot flying. A cue available to the flight crew would have been the green altitude range arc on the navigation displays map. There was a waypoint about five miles out of the airport at 1,800 feet, and because they had this altitude selected, the green arc would have shown they would not arrive at 1,800 until after they reached that waypoint. So it's basically on their onboard systems, like a little path, like this is where you're going to be, and if they had looked at it, they would have seen like, oh, we're going to be too high. This is like a little, like, not a real light. No, no, no. This is like in there on the, one of their displays in the cockpit. Okay. The pilot flying then changed the autopilot to vertical speed mode and set it to descend at 1,000 feet a minute. And there was an automatic change in the auto throttle to speed mode. The descent rate was not high enough to even maintain their glide path, and they continued to drift above. At eight and a half miles out, they lowered the landing gear, which, you know, creates drag. It makes it easier mm -hmm. to decelerate. The pilot flying could have set flaps to 20 at this time, but he did not. They were about 900 feet above where they should have been, and the added flaps would have allowed them to descend at a steeper angle. So you talked about flaps, you know, and you know, the different things that they do. He could have put them out at this time, and if he had, it would have helped, but he didn't. They then set the vertical speed to descend at 1,500 feet a minute, and this did get them closer to their desired glide path, mm -hmm. but then he changed it back to 1,000. And why did, why did he change it back? He maybe thought he was descending too quickly, but mm. it was inappropriate. He should have realized he was still too high. He should have been at 1,500. So there's kind of a rule of thumb mm -hmm. when it comes to appropriate glide path. The rule of thumb is you need about 300 feet of altitude loss per nautical mile. So in this example, when they're five miles out, they should be at about 1,500, roughly. Okay. In this actual incident, when they were five miles out, they were 400 feet too high. And the NTSB had some test pilots fly simulations starting at this point. Mm -hmm. Five miles out, 1,900 feet. And the test pilots found it impossible to achieve a stabilized approach by 500 oh. feet without exceeding maximum descent rates. So they should absolutely at that point have circled back around. Right. At this point now, they know. <laughs> it might even have been earlier that they should have. But at this point, yeah. yes, it's not going to work. The NTSB concludes that the flight crew mismanaged the airplane's vertical profiles, and this increased the difficulty of achieving a stabilized approach. So they just didn't maintain their vertical speed correctly. Did they not recognize that they were going at this point? Like, how, how do they not know? There's a lot to unpack. The pilot who's flying has flown extensively 
but he's, he's really new to this plane. Mm-hmm. The pilot monitoring, who's instructing him, this is his first time as an instructor. Oh. And so, you know, who knows? Maybe they were both nervous about what was going on. Uh, they were distracted. There's some other factors that I haven't talked about yet that I'm going to get to. That's going to make this a little more clear. But from this point on, from what you know, yeah. I mean, it's, it seems strange, but it could be they were nervous about these roles and what they were doing. The pilot flying was aware they needed to lose excess altitude and changed the autopilot to flight level change speed mode. This initiated the sequence of events that had the unintended consequences of deactivating automatic airspeed control. So when the autopilot was put into this mode, the autothrottle automatically changed from speed to thrust mode. Because they had a pre-selected altitude of 3,000 for a go-around, the autopilot started to initiate a climb and the thrust levels increased. This is what I mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm, when they made mm-hmm. this change, the plane thought it needed to hit the go-around altitude. When the pilot flying sees this, he disconnected the autopilot and manually reduced the thrust levers to idle. It's telling him to go around and he's like, no. Well, when he changed the autopilot mode, the autopilot thinks he wants to go around. But then the pilot's like, no, I don't want to go around. And he basically reduces the engines to idle. Mm, okay. When he does this, the auto throttle then automatically switched to hold mode due to a manual override and it would not control thruster airspeed any longer. So he selects this mode. The airplane thinks, I need to get to 3,000 feet. Mm-hmm. But then the pilot intervenes and pulls the throttle back to idle. Then the autopilot thinks, okay, the pilot's taking over. The pilot's going to control the throttle. I don't need to do that anymore. But then he stops controlling the throttle? Right. Because... Since he flew the A320 before, the A320 handles autothrottle differently. If he had oh. done the same thing in an A320, the autothrottle still would have been active. But oh. because he's in a triple seven now, the autothrottle just disconnects and says, "Okay, you got it." Oh, and so that's why they're because it's 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 like almost counterintuitive because like oh they're they're too high coming in too fast, right? Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden they're like, oh no, they're too low <laughs> going and too slow. Yeah, and too slow. Okay. Yeah. And it's because this, he has essentially put the engines into idle, thinking that the autothrottle is still active when it is mm, not. Okay. So you think, why would this happen? You know, aren't there any safeties for this? There is actually a built-in safety for this. When they reached 137 knots, the pilot flying called out, flight director off. It was Asiana's informal practice to fly a visual approach with the flight director off for the pilot flying and on for the pilot monitoring. But the pilot monitoring would have to turn his off and back on. If they did this correctly, the auto throttle would have gone back into speed mode and would have maintained the airspeed. But because they did, because they were very mm. specific in the way they did this, it did not kick back on. It's one of those complex logic things. Like how does what is every possible scenario for the auto throttle and autopilot to work? You turn this off, you turn this on. What works, what doesn't work? In this particular set of instances, the auto throttle safety did not reactivate because it was just that right, like on off yeah. switch, left right. It's like a up, down, left, right, BA start combination. Or- <laughs> right. So, yeah, so the flight director was off for the pilot flying, but on for the pilot monitoring. And because of that, it didn't work. If the pilot monitoring had turned his off and then back on, it would have worked. If they'd oh. both been on, it would have worked. If they'd both been off, it would have worked. It was just this particular combination. It was a code. Yes. But like the bad one. The bad code. So now, like I've said before, the plane is just basically gliding. There's no thrust because the engines are idle and the pilots don't realize it. They don't feel it. No. I mean, because the engines would have been relatively low at this point anyway. Okay. You still hear the noise. They're just idling. They're just not really producing much thrust. Okay. And they're not focused on it. You know, I'm sure if they had looked down at their um, engine reading, they would have seen it was at idle and not moving, but they were focused on so many other things. They probably just assume the autothrottle's handling it. I don't need to look at it. They descended below the glide path and the alarm sounded, like I mentioned earlier, which caused the pilot monitoring to react by adding thrust, but it was too late. The NTSB concluded that at about 200 feet, 
one or more flight crew members became aware of the low airspeed and the low path conditions, but did not initiate a go-around until the plane was below 100 feet. So they had noticed it just a little bit earlier, didn't do anything, they waited a little longer, and then they tried to go around, and by then it was too late. Who knows, even mm-hmm. if they could have done it at 200 feet. Maybe, but it's hard to say. Yeah, especially without throttle. Mm-hmm. So in a post-accident interview, the pilot flying said he considered selecting the flight level change speed mode while descending in vertical speed mode. He thought that the flight level change speed would cause the thrust levers to move to the idle position and stay there. He added he was not sure whether he actually did select this, and when he was informed that it had been selected in a follow-up interview, he reiterated his uncertainty, but stated it did not matter because selecting this would not have affected the functioning of the autothrottle and its automatic control of the selected airspeed. So basically, he's just, they're realizing maybe he doesn't understand exactly how this all connects together. Yeah. When questioned further, he stated he did not believe he had selected the flight level change speed mode, which he did. It turns out that the pilot flying had an inaccurate understanding of how the autopilot and the autothrottle in the 777 worked. Like I said, he used to fly A320s, you know, and is now at this point training for 777s. And a review of the Asiana 777 transition training slides revealed they did not provide a complete picture of the autopilot and autothrottle system design logic involving the functioning of the autothrottle in hold mode, or the availability of minimum speed protection when the autothrottle was in hold mode. So it's basically just saying, in the training manuals for the transition to this plane, the airline mm-hmm. didn't even go over this stuff. Oh. I mean, they, they may have gone over it a bit, but it didn't get into the nitty-gritty details of how all that logic works. So which is why he thought it was still working when, in reality, he had gone through a process to disable the autothrottle. Yeah, I guess that does seem like a lot to keep track of, though. Like, okay, this disables this, but only on this plane, if you do this. But if you do this, yeah. Yeah, especially transitioning from, you know, uh, one manufacturer of a plane to another. Like, in general, I don't want to overgeneralize here, but in general, Boeings are going to operate all similarly with a similar logic. Mm -hmm. Airbuses are going to all operate similarly with their own logic. Going from one to another, there's going to be a big learning curve. Okay, yeah. I wasn't even thinking about like the different manufacturers (laughs) versus, yeah, just different planes, yeah. Right, yeah, like transitioning from like, let's say, a 737 to a 777. Big deal, not as big of a deal as going from an A320 to a 777. In fact, actually, I'm going to have an example from a training slide uh, from Asiana here. They had a training slide labeled Stall Protection Features, which makes the unqualified statement that Autothrottles engage automatically if armed, which didn't happen here. <laughs> that was not the case. So they had an incorrect slide in their training? Right. It's like, in general, that might be true, but there's also cases where it doesn't happen. It's like, it, can, it provided a very blanket statement without the asterisk saying, hey, there's actually moments where this won't, this won't happen, except in yeah. these cases. Okay. No description was provided of the circumstances when the autothrottle will not automatically engage. So like, they were just missing a very important asterisk oh. there. These circumstances include when the autopilot was in flight level change speed mode. A ground school instructor for Asiana said that he had experienced an anomaly in the behavior of the autothrottle in that it did not automatically engage while in flight level change speed pitch mode and had explained this to the class that the pilot flying was in, but the pilot flying was not able to apply this knowledge during the accident. So even though the slide was wrong, the instructor had explained. Yeah, Yeah, he's like, I've had anomalies in this actually, but, you know, the pilot flying didn't think about that in the moment. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's so many things to think about. If it's not really ingrained in your brain, like, hey, remember this. Yeah, plus also the way the instructor described it, he described it as an anomaly, not that's the way the system works. 
oh yeah that's a weird way it's like oh there's because then you're just like i don't know how but sometimes this happens versus right. like hey yeah these are the steps that cause this to happen mm-hmm. and you know this was not incorporated into the formal training to indicate that this was part of autopilot and auto throttle functionality so there was just a gap in the training here mm-hmm. the ntsb also notes that several errors might be partially attributed to fatigue the pilot flying, the pilot monitoring, and the first officer each said they had obtained five and a half, eight, and ten and a half hours of sleep, respectively, in the previous 24 hours of the accident. However, their self-reported sleep needs of about 7.5, 7, and 7.5 hours. So the pilot flying got less than normal, and the mm. other two pilots obtained their sleep over multiple sleep periods. Mm. Yeah, non-consolidated sleep is less restorative than consolidated sleep. And although the pilot monitoring first officer obtained enough total sleep, their recent sleep was fragmented, reducing its restorative value. So they've been getting some bad sleep. Yeah. It was also discovered that the pilot flying became stressed about having to fly a visual approach without the aid of the electronic glide slope. Remember, I mentioned the ILS was not functioning. The pilot flying did not make this known to the pilot monitoring, but if he had, the pilot monitoring might have discussed the availability of cues such as altitude range arc or would have suggested alternative methods for conducting the approach, such as flying a VNAV that would have provided a precise vertical guidance on the flight display. The pilot flying was likely reluctant to acknowledge his lack of confidence in this area, and as a result, the flight crew missed an opportunity to discuss ways they could have effectively managed the airplane's vertical path. So he was nervous about this, and he didn't let anyone know. If he had let you know, the instructor know, the instructor would have mm-hmm. said, oh, well, here, you can use these systems to help you out. You know, This is the way to do it when the ILS isn't working. So, yeah, how much do you think the ILS played into this exactly? <laughs> the whole, I mean, just... I guess it's hard to know. I'm going to read two more sentences here, <laughs> and then I'm going to drop a bomb on you, Chris. Okay. The pilot flying was also supposed to make callouts anytime he selected any changes to the autopilot system. He did not, and this reduced the chance for the pilot monitoring to notice that things were not going the way they should have been. So he had been making some adjustments to um, the speed and you know the altitude He's make, and making changes without saying them. And normally the way it works is one pilot makes the change, calls out what he's doing, and the other pilot will verify, yes, that is the correct thing to do. And you do that anyway, right? Right. That should be normal operating procedure, and he wasn't. And especially with an instructor. Exactly. So you asked if uh, the ILS being off played into this. One of the things that the NTSB discovered when they were doing this investigation was that, you know, both of these pilots who were, you know, at the controls at the time were very, very established. Mm -hmm. Like I mentioned at the top of the episode, one of them had over 12,000 flight hours. The other one was closing in on 10,000 flight hours. They discovered these pilots had very rarely ever manually flown their planes. Oh. They discovered that in all of that time that they had been flying, that they had manually flown maybe only a couple hundred hours total. Hmm. And as a result of this, they had developed an over-reliance on these automated systems like the ILS. So when the automated systems aren't working, they're not super comfortable flying the plane. Neither of them are. Yeah, neither of them, which showed here when the pilot flying in the ILS is out, he becomes nervous like, oh, I've." this is actually, if I remember right, this was his first time trying to manually land uh, a plane. What? Uh, yeah, he had he had gone his whole career really relying on these automated systems. How is that not part of just training? <laughs> That's one of the things that came out of this is the airline then had to begin emphasizing that these pilots need to practice their manual flying. This is actually a real concern in aviation these days. Uh-huh. A lot of uh, people are concerned about the lack, they call it, I believe they call it airmanship, the lack of airmanship that some pilots have. You know, they can spend their whole careers flying using these automated systems and really be uncomfortable the entire time. Like really relying, it would be like driving your car only on cruise control. And then like, yeah. your cruise control wor- stops working. Like I'm not as yeah. comfortable with this. But instead of a car, you have a plane with 300 people on it. Yeah, that's nuts to me that he's like never. So the, he's landing a plane 
manually for the first time on a new plane that he's never flown before. Right. And doing this slam dunk approach into San Francisco. So, uh, I mean, this, it's just, yeah. it's, it's, it's a nightmare. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to tell you beyond that. It's, this shouldn't have happened. Okay, so got some findings here. The flight crew mismanaged the airplane's vertical profile during the initial approach, which resulted in the airplane being well above the desired glide path when it reached the five nautical mile point. And this increased the difficulty of achieving a stabilized approach. So we mentioned that they were too high, even five miles out. And in simulators, pilots had difficulty landing from this scenario. Yeah. The flight crew's mismanagement of the airplane's vertical profile during the initial approach led to a period of increased workload that reduced the pilot monitoring's awareness of the pilot flying's actions around the time of the unintended deactivation of the automatic airspeed control. So they had mismanaged things, which caused more work for them, which caused the instructor to pay less attention to what was going on with the pilot flying. Mm. When they were at about 200 feet of altitude, one or more of the flight crew members became aware of the low airspeed and low path conditions, but the flight crew did not initiate a go-around until the airplane was below 100 feet, at which point the airplane did not have the performance capability to accomplish a go-around. So they were aware there was a problem a little earlier and didn't do anything until it was way too late. And again, even if they had done something at 200 feet, it might not have worked. We don't know. Yeah. The flight crew was experiencing fatigue, which likely degraded their performance during the approach. They had bad sleep. Mm-hmm. As a result of the complexities in the 777 automatic flight control system and inadequacies in related training and documentation, the pilot flying had an inaccurate understanding of how the autopilot flight director system and autothrottle interacted to control airspeed, which led to his inadvertent deactivation of automatic airspeed control. Again, he thought the autothrottle was working, but he had inadvertently gone through a sequence of actions that deactivated it. Mm-hmm. If Asiana Airlines had not allowed an informal practice of keeping the pilot monitoring's flight director on during a visual approach, the pilot monitoring would have likely switched off both flight directors, which would have corrected the unintended deactivation of automatic airspeed control. So again, if the pilot monitoring had also turned off his flight director, everything would have been fine. Mm. The National Transportation Safety Board determines that the probable cause of this accident was the flight crew's mismanagement of the airplane's descent during the visual approach. The pilot flying unintended deactivation of automatic airspeed control, the flight crew's inadequate monitoring of airspeed, and the flight crew's delayed execution of a go-around after they became aware the airplane was below acceptable glide path and airspeed tolerances. Contributing mm-hmm. to this accident were the complexities of the autothrottle and autopilot flight director systems that were inadequately described in Boeing's documentation and Asiana's pilot training, which increased the likelihood of mode error, the flight crew's non-standard communication and coordination regarding the use of autothrottle and autopilot flight director systems, the pilot flying's inadequate training on planning and executing in visual approaches, the pilot monitoring's inadequate supervision of the pilot flying, and flight crew fatigue, which likely degraded their performance. Mm. So, of course, our recommendations that came out of this require Boeing to develop enhanced 777 training that will improve flight crew understanding of autothrottle modes and automatic activation system logic through improved documentation, courseware, and instructor training. So, better training so that they understand how all this logic works. Once the enhanced Boeing 777 training has been developed, require operators and training providers to provide this training to the 777 pilots. Obviously, make the training, they give it to the pilots. Convene an expert panel, including members with expertise in human factors, training, and flight operations to evaluate methods for training flight crews to understand the functionality of automated systems for flight path management, identify the most effective training methods, and revise training guidance for operators in this area. That makes sense. Like, review how you train people because it's not working. Yeah. There's four uh, recommendations here for Asiana. Reinforce through your pilot training programs flight crew adherence to standard operating procedures involving making inputs to the operation of auto flight system controls on the Boeing 777 mode control panel 
and the performance of related callouts. So again, train your guys a little better. Mm -hmm. Revise your flight instructor operating experience qualification criteria to ensure that all instructor candidates are supervised and observed by a more experienced instructor during OE or line training until the new instructor demonstrates proficiency in the instructor role. So better training for your instructors. Make sure your instructors yeah. know how to do their job, how to, how to be instructors. Issue guidance in the Boeing 777 pilot operating manual that after disconnecting the autopilot on a visual approach, if flight director guidance is not being followed, both flight director switches should be turned to off. So just this ensures that the auto throttle safety would have activated. Mm -hmm. Modify your automation policy to provide for more manual flight, both in training and in line operations to improve pilot efficiency. So this talks about what I was mentioning. Make sure your pilots know how to hand fly. Know they know how to manually fly. Like make it part of your training and yeah. your pilot proficiency just to make sure that something like this wouldn't happen again. That if ILS is out, it's not devastating for your flight crew. Yeah. So after all said done, Asiana Airline officials said the airline would improve training for its pilots, in particular for pilots learning to fly different types of aircraft and in various skills such as making visual approaches and flying on autopilot. Asiana officials also said they will seek to improve communication skills among crew members, including a system to manage fatigue risk, set up separate maintenance teams for Boeing and Airbus planes, and improve safety management systems. On August 12, 2013, so a little over a month after the incident, Asiana Airlines announced initial payouts to crash survivors of $10,000, stating the survivors need money to go to the hospital or for transportation, so we're giving them $10,000 first. Mm -hmm. Asiana spokeswoman Lee Hyo Min said in a telephone interview, even if they are not hurt or they don't go to the hospital, we will still give them this money. The carrier may pay more after the U.S. National Transportation Safety Board completes its investigation into the accident. The families of those who died were paid more than $10,000 as an initial compensation, Lee said, without giving a specific figure. Hmm. So I'm sure, as you imagine, this was a crash in the United States. There were a bunch of lawsuits, uh, some yeah. of which are still working their way through the court system. So all of that's still like kind of up in the air. But, you know, people who had family members who passed away, you know, obviously received more compensation. It's just, and a lot of times that stuff settled out of court, so you don't know exactly what yeah. dollar amounts are. But in the end, you know, people still died. Uh, it is a totally preventable tragedy. This shouldn't have happened. You know, no, no dollar figure is going to bring back uh, someone to life. What happened to the pilot that was flying and then the pilot instructor? So the pilots of this plane eventually did return to work after, it was, it was months later. I think it was in October of that year, which would have been, what, three months later. Mm -hmm. They returned doing groundwork to kind of get back into the swing of things. And I think they eventually did begin piloting planes again. So obviously okay. they went through a bunch of training. <laughs> yeah. They went through groundwork and I believe that they, they are flying again. Okay. I don't know if they're still flying today. Obviously this was, you know, almost eight years ago now. Yeah. Uh, but they, that is what happened at the time. But uh, that's it. I mean, that's uh, Asiana Flight 214. Like I said, totally preventable. Shouldn't have happened. But hopefully, you know, everyone learned uh, some lessons from this mm -hmm. incident. That sounds nuts. I I'm, uh, I can't believe that, you know, only three people passed away and that, you know, it's it's terrible to speculate, but maybe two of them, if they had been wearing their seatbelts, might have been okay. Who knows? But yeah. regardless, it happened. I mean, let that be a lesson. Always wear your seatbelt on the plane. <laughs> I yeah. see people who don't have it on all the time and it drives me crazy. I can't imagine sitting there without uh, a seatbelt on. I know I've done that in the past, but I won't. No, keep that seatbelt on. <laughs> yeah. I've also heard stories of like, even planes just hitting like severe turbulence out of the blue. You know, if you hit turbulence, you don't have your seatbelt on. You could uh, hit your head on the storage bin above you. Yeah. I want to see the video of this now. Yeah. Uh, you definitely follow us on social media at Black Box Down Pod. Uh, we'll post a uh, video and images from this. And you'll also be amazed. I like, 
it's hard to describe, but I mean, think about this plane crashed and is sitting like right off the runway. It's on fire. There's rescue trucks attending to it. And in some of this video and pictures in the background, you see other planes taxiing on other runways. Oh I, I can't imagine being in one of those other planes looking out the window and be like, is that a plane crash? Oh, man. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, follow us on social media. You'll see some of that stuff. It's, uh, it's unbelievable. Thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, we'll be back again next week. Make sure, like I've said, give us a follow on social media at Black Box Down Pod, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, uh, and share the podcast with someone. Maybe give us a, a thumbs up or write us a, a good review, hopefully, uh, wherever you listen to this podcast. And uh, we'll be back again next week. Yeah, maybe someone like a like a aunt or an uncle or someone who might not normally listen to podcasts. Or, I don't yeah, know. why not? You like your aunt. You like your uncle. Yeah, give him a, give him the gift of Black Box Down. <laughs> it's free. <laughs> All right, bye.